Hey everyone, I'm Yaru, and you're listening to the Creative Nature Podcast. I'm recording this on a Monday evening. It's like 7:30. It's been dark for hours and hours. I'm in my pajama. My teeth are brushed, and I'm gonna go to bed soon. But before I do, I want to share a conversation with you that I have so loved recording and so loved listening back to just now. I talked to Rin Silverstein, who is so many beautiful things, <laughs> a writer and a priestess and someone who embodies creativity in a way that I really admire and appreciate. We talked about many things like longing as a beautiful guiding structure. Um, we talked about queer ways of relating to the moon and the moon as an ancestral home, which is a concept that's really touched me, kind of blown away. I love it. I need to know more about what that means to me and to the moon and to all of us. We also talked about the magic of Jewish time and cycles and about sustaining, growing and holding a creative practice both inside and outside of institutions. So yeah, I really hope you'll enjoy listening to this as much as I did. There's so many treasures in this conversation and I also highly recommend that you check Rin's upcoming class out. It is all about alchemizing longing. I'll be there. I'm so excited for it. I have been excited for this for a long time. And yeah, maybe I'll see some of you there. I don't have a ton of updates to share. Um, mending together my textile magic program has begun yesterday. I really loved it. It felt so affirming to show up and hold the space. So I think there'll be, I know there'll be more of this kind of thing. I am shifting kind of away from Patreon towards offering something that I'll call the Creative Nature Coven, which will open around the winter solstice. It'll be a low cost monthly membership that allows you to participate in our creative space sessions and other workshop and the network that we have on Mighty Networks. And I'll let you know when I know more. And in terms of free stuff, I two weeks ago I ran my first workshop on printmaking. Really loved that. That was super fun. To be honest, I was super nervous. I was using like an overhead camera for the first time where I was sharing my process on my art table. Um, thank you so much to Emma Freeman for introducing me to that technique. It is so cool. And I have a ton more workshops coming up. So I'm kind of steadying myself in what I offer and giving myself more of a rhythm. So I'll be offering free creative workshops like this every other month. The next one is coming up in January. It's going to be about tarot for dreaming into 2022. I can't believe I'm saying that. That is coming up. <laughs> but yeah, I will link to that. You can sign up for that if you like. You can invite your friends, but most importantly, enjoy the episode and thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everyone. Gosh, I know I say this very often, but I'm generally just so excited for my guests. And this one is extra special to my heart. It feels like it's been a long time coming, um, but I'm just so excited for it. It feels like very, um, very suited to the time as well. We're recording this and kind of mid late October and anyway I'm gonna say who I'm talking to now before I'm waffling on. I have the wonderful Rin Silverstein with me and I'm gonna um 
read their bio out because it's so beautiful. I know this is something that I usually don't do, so it feels a little bit formal and like stiff. But this bio is so great that I just couldn't, I just could not read it to you. So here it goes. Rin Silverstein is a writer and priestess with a creative living practice that's embodied, queer, and ancestrally rooted. They cultivate longing as devotional practice, creating space in the everyday for dreaming and enchantment, honoring the moon as their ancestral home and hence for the connection to the moon, uh, to the connection the moon enables between our bodies, land bodies, and water bodies. Ooh, <laughs> isn't that so beautiful? So yeah, Rin, thank you so much for taking the time and being with us. I'm really, really excited to talk to you. Thank you so much, Yara. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> Great. So um, as you might know, I like to open conversations since I changed the name of the podcast to asking what your creative nature currently is and how you would describe your work. Yeah, I love that question. I um, Yeah, I, I think uh, about creative nature and my own creative nature right now is probably in kind of a spring space. Um, so it's been sort of a long wintry period for me. Um, I have been in graduate school for eight years and just um, just sort of dropped out um, and in, of my PhD program after a while and have really just been blooming since then. And that feels really good. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of growing, flowering a little bit. Um, so that feels great. And as for my work, um, I'm primarily a writer and I'm really interested in how writing can be less um, solitary and more about being in relationship and community with the writing itself, like as a co-creative mechanism, but also as um, also with community, with ancestors and with nature and culture themselves um, kind of around us. Um, so, yeah, really interested in how um, in how writing and other creative forces can be uh, really just co-creative with with us and with what's around us um, and not just sort of the like. Um, almost, you know, Western European colonial like mechanism of like, I'm just writing this thing by myself in my tower and I'm a brain on a stick. Like, and so instead of that, I'm, I'm really interested in, in this co-creative process and um, yeah, really curious about that. I'm also a Kohenic Hebrew priestess. Um, I'm trained in earth-based Jewish mystical tradition and my work is primarily animated by longing. So that's really what I want others to feel when they're working with me or reading my work. And that's also how I want to feel when I'm writing um, and when I'm doing my work. Yes, I feel so much longing when I receive your newsletters. I love <laughs> them so much. I can't recommend them highly enough. And I want to name two funny associations that I had as I heard you talk. The first one was the eight of cups and the sense of walking away around academia mm. and how it had been eight years. I thought that was like, wow, that's so brave. I'm so happy you found that freedom for yourself. Not that a PhD you know, has to be the opposite of freedom for some people, but I'm just so excited to see how your work is going to unfold and what you're going to do with this time that you have. Um, and the second association, I think I have forgotten because that's my brain <laughs> these days, <laughs> but maybe it'll come back. But anyway, I love what you said about longing. And I know you also write about longing as structure. I remember a really beautiful newsletter about that. And so I wondered if we could maybe hear a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so longing to me is really a creative force and an animating force. Um, and 
I feel like traditionally speaking, people kind of can conceptualize it as an absence, like, oh, I really want this thing, meaning I don't have this thing. Um, so like a negative sort of, as opposed to something that's already there, you're longing for something that's not there and you want it to be. Um, but I actually see longing as a means by which we come to know ourselves, um, each other and what we want our worlds to become. So I see it more as, as a generative force of like the fact that you're longing for something really means something about you and really means that like you want there to be something better. Um, and so I'm at, almost less interested in like what people are actually longing for, although that's super important than like the fact that they're like longing for something at all. Um, I, and also like, it really works for me in terms of um, thinking through the way I write and my process. So like, I don't actually do standard plotting super well in terms of novels and like stories. Um, it actually works a lot more for me to follow my own longing and be like, what am I looking for here? Um, instead of like, oh, this person's going to do this. And then after that, this character will do this. And so it, I chart my way through my own writing as in terms of like, oh, how do I actually want to feel when I'm working on this story? Where do I actually want to take these characters as opposed to like, I know exactly what they're going to do and when and how. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit about that. Mm, yeah, that feels so beautiful to hear. And um, I would love to read something longer form that you made in that way, if that ever um, becomes a thing that's available to people like mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I love the way you work with the word longing and just generally how intentional and curious and playful you are with language. Because I think the word desire, for example, for me, can sometimes be a little bit more complicated. It feels a little bit more sexual, though definitely it doesn't have to be. But I think sometimes when I hold the word desire for myself, it just feels a little bit more, yeah, complex and like I have to really think about it. Whereas I, I feel like longing is almost like a pulse check where I feel if, you know, the more alive I am, the more I will be longing for something in a really positive way, in a, like a really life-affirming way. <clears throat> so yeah thank you for that um so you already mentioned that you have been in these kind of different creative structures I think so you've been um in uh, grad school but you also have worked as a freelancer for a long time is that right <clears throat> yeah so, yeah so I would love to hear a little bit more about kind of how those different spaces and maybe ways of approaching work have impacted your creativity or the way you write um, and also what the pandemic has changed for you which I know is like a kind of can be a massive question and you're super welcome to take this any any direction that you like. Mm, yes thank you um, so yeah I, I, I did used to freelance um, I haven't done it for a little bit but I um, right before the pandemic, I was writing um, romance actually for a company um, of uh, serial writers. So basically what I would do is I would get a summary of of sort of what was called the episode and I would write it out uh, for them, send it back. And I would do this for, you know, about a year, um, which meant a lot of writing, <laughs> like a lot, a lot, a lot of, of words. And it was super fun. Um, I, they weren't really my stories. Like I, I didn't, you know, make up any of the characters, but I did get to give them like kind of their own personalities in a way. And so some of their own like little ticks and little like things that they were interested in. And that was super fun. But um, after a while, I really burnt out. Um, because I was writing about 
8,000 words a week on just a really regular basis. And there just wasn't, I just don't have the kind of like, I'm not like a prolific enough writer. Like that's not my thing. Like I don't write to, I don't write so much that it's like easy for me to do that. Um, and I've, I've kind of wrestled with that for a while. And finally now I'm like, you know what, that's fine. It's just not my thing. Um, but at the time I was really upset because I really enjoyed the work and didn't want to burn out, but you know, you kind of have to listen to your body when your body's like, please stop. So <laughs> I did, you know, stop. And, um, the, the issues with that kind of kept coming, um, after I stopped because I had gotten so used to, to writing for that company and for that story that it became really difficult for me after a year of doing that to really write anything else, um, even just for myself, because I kept thinking like, how is this going to be received? Are people going to like this or are they not? Um, and then also just everything with, um, with kind of money involved became really complicated. Like I felt like I couldn't write for free anymore or also at the same time I could I couldn't write for money and it was just a very weird sort of paradox where I like both could and couldn't do this thing at the same time um and it really felt complicated and um so yeah that that was really hard to get around I, I took a bunch of writing workshops um in the meantime after after that and sort of through the pandemic there were a lot of um amazing workshops that have sort of moved online. Um, Catapult is one of them, which that I've, I've taken a lot of classes with. And that's been really fantastic. Um, although um, I've had to move really slowly, like I haven't been able to workshop like, you know, huge stories or novels. I've been workshopping like two or three pages at a time. And that's been really sweet, actually, to kind of move into this mode of sharing that's like, here, just have this little bit of what I've written. What do you think? Instead of like, have this like, dissertation or have this huge novel um and so yeah it's been nice actually to share little pieces of writing and it feels more sustainable um and yeah as, as for grad school um so I was in yeah like I said I was in grad school for quite a long time getting my PhD um or trying to get my PhD and um I think part of that was difficult because my um I was getting a PhD in cultural studies and my department around 2016 I believe maybe a little bit later, might've been 2017, um, was actually defunded. So basically what happened is the, um, there was some kind of inter intergraduate school squabbling between the Dean of the graduate school and like, you know, my department and there was some sort of vendetta and it was just very vindictive and terrible. Uh, I didn't even know all the details and I still don't, but basically what ended up happening is that my department got totally defunded and a lot of people left and, it just made it so that there really wasn't a lot of support. Like my advisor was still there, which was fantastic, but you know, there weren't regular things like, you know, um, there weren't little conferences, there weren't ways to kind of come in and talk with other people. The sense of community was really completely taken away, um, which makes it really difficult because a dissertation is such a solitary process anyway. And so I think that also really gave me an idea of what I wanted writing to be like. And it was like, not this, it was like anything but this. So um, I kind of left academia being like, you know what, I want to write in a way that's not super solitary and super constricted and constrained by academic norms. Um, and I found that after I left, um, when I realized, you know, I don't actually want to finish this, I was sort of distant from my topic anyway. And like, didn't really see a point in finishing when I don't really want to be a professor uh, anymore. So 
um, yeah, I, I kind of left thinking um, that, um, oh, and no, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> I left kind of thinking that I really wanted to, um, yeah, do, do writing in a way that's more sustainable for me. And that is um, actually more fun um, in terms of even just doing like things like research um, on my own now is super fun. Like I have some interesting, I hope, newsletters planned around research topics that I have, um, you know, thought a lot about in the past, um, but like never would have had the time to write when I was in academia. So it's just been really nice to have, um, to have that extra space, both of like my mind and also in my life to really get time to, to move down into the writing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so sorry that happened. I had no idea. And I can't imagine that's, that's a big shift and um, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> what you're saying about the research and the joy, as we said in the beginning before we hit recording, makes so much sense to me as well. I feel sometimes I feel like a very excited young puppy running around the internet, sniffing everything, wagging my tail, being like, "Oh my god, all this information we have access to! It's so exciting! What are we gonna do?" And then I'm also really worried about what it does to our brains that we consume media in all kinds of forms at such fast paces but that's a whole different conversation right um yeah I would I would love to hear a little bit more um about this is kind of maybe a little bit of a segue um but you you touched on ecofeminism uh, not yet in this conversation but in another um space that we talked in and I would love to hear a little bit more about what it means to you right now maybe what feels exciting and hopeful about it but also what feels difficult and um maybe has room to move in different directions yeah thank you for the question i um i actually think i can relate it back to what we were talking about <laughs> um so i think um yeah my relationship to ecofeminism is is a little bit ambivalent um so i'm really grateful for the work that it and i say it as in like as though it were this you know concrete thing that everyone knows about which maybe not necessarily um so ecofeminism is um basically a school of thought um sort of broadly speaking that can be conceptualized as really critiquing the way that patriarchy and um yeah the patriarchal systems have dominated and extracted from nature um and so i think that's a really important critique um it also kind of draws an instructive parallel with feminism because um, ecofeminists have often pointed to the uh, kind of treatment of women um, by patriarchy um, as analogous to the treatment of the earth, which is, I think, an, an interesting parallel. Um, so, you know, the sort of the sort of um, conclusion one can draw from that is like, oh, look at how men are treating women, look at how men are treating the earth. And I think that's pretty useful in, in a lot of ways. And I also think it's a little reductive um, in certain ways as well, um, because, um, well, first, before I go into that, um, I also want to note that um, women and uh, people of color and women of color especially are seen as close to nature. Um, so that's one of the ways in which um, patriarchal kind of domination has kept um, people underfoot. Um, because oftentimes, you know, it, the sort of standard claim for why, you know, women and, and uh, POC were not allowed to study in school, for example, was like, oh, no, they're, they're, um, they're naturally not suited for it. 
you know? Um, and so this sort of association of, of, of people who are marginalized and oppressed with, with nature is pretty longstanding. Um, and the standard kind of ecofeminist response to that is to actually be like, well, let's embrace nature and women as connected to nature. Um, and let's kind of embrace that women are more connected to nature than men because of what I'm calling or what they call, um, or what some ecofeminists, definitely not all, call women's natural cycles. And I'm sort of using air quotes there. Um, because, of course, this interpretation of women's natural cycles is sort of problematic for trans non-binary folks, as well as, you know, any cis woman who doesn't actually menstruate, right? So um, what happens, what ends up happening is sort of, um, and again, this is definitely not all ecofeminism, but some strands of it, um, especially from like the 1970s and, and 60s, sort of verge upon bioessentialism in terms of like how people are connected to nature. And whereas I think that everyone's connected to nature and you don't have to have like a period to be connected to nature and, um, or, you know, you can, and, and if you do, that's, that's, you know, that's great too. But um, yeah, I'm kind of a little bit um, frustrated sometimes at how people talk about it um, in terms of like, oh, well, you know, um, women are so close to nature. And then um, I think, well, okay, you know, if you want to be sure, and if you feel that connection, that's fantastic. And also, like, how can we make room for um, a sort of critique of that, um, in terms of refusing, in some ways, the ways that we've been forced to be too close to nature in a way that's unhelpful for us, and like, unjust for us. Um, and, um, because nature has been used as, like I sort of said earlier, as a cudgel of oppression for many people. Like, for example, like the the long-standing argument that homosexuality is unnatural or transgenders are unnatural. And in that case, I think we need to realize that nature is a lot more wild and kind of unpalatable to like, you know, right-wing norms than than we can imagine, which I think is really beautiful. Um, and then at the same time, I think um, of the sort of um what's called the Xenofeminist Manifesto um, is, is a critique of ecofeminism, which isn't a critique that I agree with 100%. In fact, I probably agree with like maybe 50% of it or less. Um, but one of the things that I think they get right is um, they say if nature is unjust, change nature. So, you know, that can mean like, you know, if, if, you're, if you're pregnant and you want to get an abortion, like definitely get an abortion. If you uh, want to um, you know, take um, hormones for whatever reason, you should you should do that. And that's not necessarily something that's natural, although I think it can be construed as natural as well. Um, I just think that it's important to sometimes push back, push back the argument a little bit that we always have to be um, doing what's natural for us and what's natural for society. Because of course, um, if we were doing that, we'd still be, you know, um, without any of the technology that we have now. And um, something that ecofeminists um, believe is that um, we do need to embrace technology. And this is kind of where I relate back to what you were saying earlier, Yara, around like what happens when we, our brains are kind of confronted with all of this new technology and all of these new things. And that's sort of where I, part of me disagrees a little bit with the, with the xenofeminism um, aspects, um, because while they definitely talk about how we need to embrace technology, they, um, they have a really important caveat to that, which is I think um, basically that, under a patriarchal and you know racist white supremacist society, um, technology is always going to be used for that. So technology is always going to be used in service of like, yeah, white supremacist and patriarchal norms and capitalist norms. So what we need to do, according to xenofeminism, um, is like 
yeah, seize control of the means of technology, basically. Um, and to do that, um, we, we need to get rid of capitalism and, you know, white supremacy and just all of these things. And I think that's all really important. Um, and then sometimes um, the issue with the xenofeminist position for me, um, and I, I should have said before, xenofeminism sort of means um, xeno as in like alien, so like alienated sort of from nature. Um, and that's sort of where I draw a little bit of an issue with, with xenofeminism, because I think their, um, their rejection of nature is a little bit too far are for me personally, um, that's where I sort of think, well, I think we can kind of have both. Honestly, I think we can have nature and culture. Um, and I think that actually the construction of what Donna Haraway calls nature cultures is a lot more apt here um, because oftentimes it's actually really difficult to separate nature from culture. Like we don't really live in a world where, where nature is totally free and like unbridled. Um, we actually live in a world where nature is totally um, shaped by human culture. And that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. Um, sometimes it can be kind of sad to see how people have really ruined a lot of nature. And also, I think that to believe that humans should have nothing to do with nature is also a dangerous concept um, and kind of ignores traditions of indigenous sovereignty and stewardship over centuries and millennia. Um, but anyway, I was, I was thinking about um, yeah, xenofeminism and um, yeah, their sort of their sort of insistence on on technology. And while I think a lot of that is good, where I sort of get frustrated with that positionality is when people say, "Oh, actually, like you know, there's nothing wrong with being online for like 20 hours. Like that's not going to do anything." And I'm like, "Really? <laughs> like I don't know about you, but if I'm online for a lot of time, that's really going to like mess with my brain." Um, and yeah, it just sort of reminds me a little of this tweet I saw recently that was like, you know, complaining about how, you know, or it was, it was critiquing the complaint that kids these days, and I'm putting that in quotes, like millennials, basically, who are not kids anymore, but whatever, um, how millennials often use technology um, all the time. And um, the, the, the tweet was basically saying that there is actually no difference between people use having used to read newspapers all the time and people being on the internet all the time. And I just thought, no, that's just not the case. Um, you know, in some ways that comparison is, is appropriate in terms of that our attention spans might be always, might always have been, you know, placed on something else. Like we're not always talking to each other in, in the train. Like I feel like in trains and cafes, people oftentimes were never talking to each other because they were always reading newspapers or being online. But um, the problem I think is to separate the material circumstances of being online all the time and being, you know, reading a newspaper all the time because they're so different. I don't think you can actually compare those two meaningfully. Um, so I get really frustrated when people are like, oh yeah, there's actually nothing, nothing has changed, you know, they'll say. And like, that's when I get like, oh no, because I think it's, yeah, it's really kind of unhelpful, I think, to compare um, two very markedly different scenarios um, beyond just like, saying that people like to be distracted, which is maybe true, but not super helpful to think about, I think. So, sorry, that was a really long-winded response. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it so much. I was nodding and smiling along as you were talking, and I share your frustrations, and I think you've described and introduced a lot of ideas really beautifully, and I'm so excited to share them. So thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> where do we go from here? Actually, a question or a follow-up question that I forgot to um, 
bring in in the question before this one was just to talk a little bit more about how the pandemic maybe has changed your perspective on these things or your creative practice because I feel like there's been so much more room to really observe what you're describing around technology, what it does to our bodies, how we relate to nature, how we embody or inhabit nature. I think it's interesting also to wonder about <clears throat> we're, we're, we're thinking about our proximity to nature rather than the ways in which we are nature and what does that mean and so whew, what have you observed in yourself and others through this time what feels like an important thing that you want to grieve or really learn and integrate for the rest of your life or maybe you have a wish for how we're moving forward from this from this and I'm open to anything yeah that's a great question and thanks for bringing that back um yeah so I um one thing that I think emerged from the pandemic that is really, has been really beautiful has been mutual aid efforts and that's something that's you know been around since the 70s if not before and well definitely before in in, in, in indigenous communities that's just sort of how things are done um but yeah in terms of the the pandemic I feel like there's been a lot of really great efforts to help our neighbors and to help people um you know who who don't um, have the resources that they need to survive. Um, and I think that's really beautiful because not always frequently are going to be doing the opposite of what we want, which is, you know, not helping us and actively oppressing us. Um, I say us, but, you know, I'm not the person who would, you know, be the most oppressed by, by a government, um, being like, you know, a white queer person. But, um, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think that if those things continue, that would be so beautiful to see. And I really would like um, also the continuation of um, online programming. Um, I'm not, you know, I don't consider myself disabled, um, but um, as someone who has, you know, a variety of like histories of um, sort of neurodivergence and sort of brain stuff, um, it can be really helpful to actually have online alternatives instead of going out to things all the time. Um, so I really, really hope that people, and it's it's already been, you know, shown that it's not always happening, which is really sad, I think. But I really hope that people continue to provide access to things online for for folks who would like that, because I think it improves everyone's life, um, honestly. And one of the amazing things about, um, you know, access um, for disability is that it really helps everyone, um, you know, and, and I think that um, yeah, the, the more access is built into our lives, the more free everyone's going to get. And I think that's so important. And um, yeah, I think that like already I've, I've heard of like in, in academia for, for instance, I've already heard that some conferences are already being like, no, sorry, you can't actually attend this virtually. And that's like, really? That's kind of, yeah, I think that's really screwed up because like, honestly, like if it was fine during the pandemic, it should be fine now. And it was fine during the pandemic and it's still a freaking pandemic. Like we're still in it. So yeah, yeah I just get really frustrated with people um, uh, or like the major systems that are trying to bring everything back to normal. Um, I'm kind of, yeah, feeling some grief around that, I think, um, because in trying to get everything back to normal and like, yeah, because normal wasn't working for many people, probably for most people, um, that it's just really frustrating and sad that um, so many people, especially yeah, major corporations and um, just general like capitalist structure, 
teachers are being like, yes, everything is good and fine now. And it's like, no, it's, it's not actually, and it's never been. So, um, it's definitely, this has been a time for people to realize that. And, um, one of my favorite sort of quotes, and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember who said this. Um, I think it might have, have honestly just been on like a meme or something, but, um, it's something like, um, instead of despairing let this moment radicalize you which I think is so wonderful and beautiful and it's something that I always try to remember um that instead of being like wow everything's terrible and we're all doomed like which you know in some days seems really true um to actually be like actually I'm going to you know stand in solidarity with my neighbors or I'm going to help people who are more marginalized than I am and in that way I'm going to support my own liberation as well um as well as theirs and we're all bound up together. Um, like I feel like that's a really important antidote to the the um, kind of climate grief, for example, or the many other types of political grief that people feel right now. Um, I think for me personally, um, I felt really um, one of the interesting things that's happened because of the pandemic is I've sort of lost a lot of um, what I've felt as my own almost. I don't know if I want to say personality, but I feel like parts of my personality have sort of shifted over the pandemic just due to like not the, the due to social engagement being sort of lower maybe than it has been in the past. Um, I noticed that when I taught um, undergrads for a semester in the spring, I like did not enjoy that. And it's not their fault. I love them. But the problem was that I was unable to actually sustain teaching people in like a zoom room for you know several hours every week um I just I had no capacity anymore it was really strange honestly because I've never had a problem teaching before and I've been teaching for five years um and all of a sudden I was like wow um something's wrong something's different I can't actually teach this class and I managed to get through it but like there were a lot of really short classes in there I was like you guys can go now <laughs> like it was a lot of cut cutbacks um for just how much time we had because I was like I just can't I just can't keep them around for that long there was a lot of um yeah a lot of feelings that my nervous system was just not equipped for it um and so I feel like since then that's also really taught me how I want to teach and the ways that I do want to be in community with with students um in my own practice and my own business and um, one of those ways is to just have less of a hierarchy and have less of a like hierarchical mode of exchange, honestly, and less of a um, top-down system of content delivery, which sounds really, really like stuffy and, and, you know, distant. But by what I mean by that is like, I really want people to be, um, when I teach folks, I really want them to be like, um, A, like having a good time and enjoying themselves, but also I don't want them to think that I know more than they do. Um, because I don't, not necessarily. Um, one thing that I learned that I actually found really helpful in teaching, um, I think my first year there was kind of a um, a group set up at the beginning of the semester to tell us all how we were supposed to teach and we'd never taught before. And I was really freaked out. And they were like, you know what, if you know, like, if you know five minutes of material more than like your senior students, you're going to be fine. And that was like, oh, yeah, that's true. And even though at the time I was like 21, I was like only a little bit older than like a senior in, in college. I think I was a little older. I think it was like 23, but yeah, like I was pretty young. Um, and this was, yeah, a while ago, but at the time it was like, oh, okay. Like I do actually know 
enough to teach people, even though it was like five minutes more of material that I had like learned than they had. Um, and nowadays I kind of think about it as like, um, I know a lot of us in, in business like to think of what would I like to share with my younger self um, as, as sort of a teaching tool and sort of a way to, to organize what we want to share in our businesses and in our lives. And for me, that question is really beautiful. And also at the same time, my sort of question is a little bit different, which is like, how would I want to help myself of like six months ago, <laughs> like myself of the pandemic? Like, what would this person actually want? What would that person need? Um, and that feels, yeah, really helpful and kind of sweet, honestly, and sort of give, to give myself that support that like to 2020 me like really needed. Um, and so to bring that back to teaching, I think that, um, something really important in teaching and in writing for me is curiosity and being really open to what students can teach you and what, um, you can learn from them. And in my own teaching at, at the university level, that's sort of what was, not missing because it was definitely there, but the kind of teacher-student dynamic of the university sort of foreclosed a lot of different relationships um, in terms of um, exchange of ideas that just would have been really great. And it feels sad that that wasn't like necessarily available to to us as um, because, you know, there's this idea that the professor has to know so much and that they're teaching like by, you know, injecting like, you know, thoughts into the student's mind and like they're just that's how you deliver content like that's a metaphor of course we don't literally do that but um but yeah it's like it sort of feels like the standard idea of teaching is sort of to give people a a copy a carbon copy of what you're thinking and then expect them to regurgitate it and I'm just like not into that um of course in the humanities it's different um in that sense in at the university level because you're expecting people to have a certain level of critical thought and that's great um but then you know it's still really difficult to manage that in a university setting because there's all these kind of expectations that you're going to go into the course with all these learning objectives and like I think learning objectives can be really helpful and really useful and like they're great for planning stuff but actually when I plan a course um, like when I'm planning my course right now for um, my my winter launch of a course that maybe we'll talk about a little bit later in this interview um, I actually didn't start with learning objectives I started with what I was curious about I started with like what I wanted to know more about and what I thought would be cool to talk about. And then I feel like only later will I come up with the learning objective. So anyway, it sort of feels like one of the things that I've learned is, is that I don't really want to be in um, the sort of standard academic model of like teaching to um, kind of fill people's heads with ideas. Um, I actually would much rather have people fill my head with ideas or, you know, tell me what they're thinking and what they're interested in and share what I'm interested in. We can have this like cool back and forth of like why it's cool or interesting. Um, and yeah, I'll stop there. Please don't ever stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, <clears throat> thank you so much. That that's that was really beautiful to hear and makes a lot of sense. And I love the tenderness of thinking of our younger self as even our 2020 self. I was just thinking back at like, gosh, the, all this time I spent lying on my living room floor. This was in a different home. I had this really thick carpet over there and me and the dogs were just lying on the floor looking at the ceiling being like, whoa. You know, that's that's how I feel. Like spend most of my time in spring back then. But anyway, yeah, thank you so much. That's really beautiful, and I'm thinking a lot about that too. How we can teach and share in different ways. I think 
I, I love in so many ways how technology is allowing us in some ways more creativity, at least for myself. I feel like taking the logistics of having to go somewhere and gather with people and like getting fully dressed and leaving the house out of the equation allows me to be a bit more creative in other ways. Um, so that is really exciting. But anyway, <clears throat> there's another whole wholly different subject maybe related that I also want to weave in and that's if that's okay. And um, so the moon in Jewish time, <laughs> I feel like you are often sharing about all these beautiful holidays. I know um, the Gregorian calendar is something that is kind of forced upon us in, in many ways, but there's so much more than that. And I would love to hear anything that you would like to share. Um, yeah, about how you're relating to the moon, how you're inhabiting Jewish time, what that means to you. Um, yeah. What, what would you like to share about that? Oh, yes, my favorite subject. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so the moon is basically my favorite thing in the world. Um, I mean, yeah, not necessarily in the world as in of Earth, because clearly the moon is not of Earth. But the favorite, my favorite thing in the universe is pretty much the moon. Um, and um, the moon, I conceptualize in a sort of Jewish, queer, diasporic way as my ancestral home, which I think you mentioned in my bio when you read it at the beginning of the interview. Um, and my reason for saying that, because I sort of say that to people and they go, what, what? Or like, that's poetic, but what does it mean? And my reason for saying that is that um, I think it's a really beautiful way to kind of look at where we are and think about our own um, kind of presence and subjectivity in the world. And like, if we're queer, our own queerness. Um, and yeah, I think that looking at the moon is so amazing for me because I think what else have my ancestors looked at before that is still here? The moon has always been here. I mean, you know, not always because of clearly at some point the moon emerged, but, you know, since people have been alive, the moon has been here, I think. Yes. And um, I think that that's really amazing. And I feel like yeah, just thinking about sort of my queer ancestors meeting under the same moon that I'm seeing every night is so amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I think of the moon as my ancestral home for, for sort of that reason as in like, um, I'm connected to the moon and it's also a way to be an anti-Zionist Jew. So, you know, for a lot of Jews, um, Israel is sort of one of the most important things for them. And for me, I'm as sort of an anti-state person in general, but um, an anti-Zionist, um, I like to think of the moon as sort of my home. So I reject the sort of nation state of Israel and the you know, settler colonial regime of, of apartheid against Palestinians. And I really embrace the moon instead. Um, and because I think the moon, you can be, there's a lot of props, you know, and sort of pros to the moon. You can see the moon from anywhere. You can, um, which is sort of great. And, and the moon is totally free to see. You don't have to pay anything to look up and see the moon. You can just look, sort of look up and see her. Um, and I always call the moon her, um, she, her for me. Um, but of course, the moon is many gendered in many different ways for anyone who wants to talk to the moon <laughs> and um yeah the moon is totally available to see for anyone you don't have to pay anything you don't have to be anywhere special you don't have to dress up although you could and that's probably really cool um you can just sort of look at the moon and be like wow this is really incredible i am here with one of the oldest beings in in the, the galaxy and that's the moon um the moon is sort of a queer ancestor um, because, you know, the moon is really beautiful and sort of sparkly and really cool. And 
just, <laughs> I'm sort of gushing about the moon now, but um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, the moon is really central to me and my spiritual practice um, also because of the Jewish calendar. And that's sort of where Jewish time comes in. So um, many people may not know this, but the Hebrew calendar is first of all, a totally separate calendar from the Gregorian calendar. So the Hebrew slash Jewish calendar has its own months, has its own cycles, and it's a solar lunar calendar actually, which is really interesting. So what that means is that every month is based on the moon cycle, but it's also unlike the Muslim calendar, it's also tied to the sun. So if you know anything about the Muslim calendar, you may know that Ramadan is at a different time every year because the the the, the festival of Ramadan kind of um, moves around the calendar every year. So it might be in the winter one year, it might be in the spring the next year, and that's beautiful. Um, and in the Jewish calendar, we're also really tied to the sun. So what that means is that Yom Kippur is always going to be in the fall. Um, and it can be in October and it can be in September, but it's always going to be in probably one of those two months. Um, and the reason for that is that um, we tie the calendar to the sun as well as the moon. So we do that by adding a month every few years. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how many years passes, but um, this coming year, um, so right now it's 5782 in the Jewish calendar, that's the year. And this year we have two months of Adar, which is really fun. Um, and that's generally what happens. Every few years you add another month of Adar. Um, and Adar is the month that Purim is in. Purim is a really special um, festival that's basically a carnival festival. So um, a lot of a lot of different um, traditions have carnival festivals. I'm thinking of just you know Mardi Gras and thinking about like general um, kind of carnival festivities all over the world, where you kind of turn things upside down and you have um, you know people being really um, able to do things that they want to do that are normally prohibited. So in Purim, you're supposed to like um, drink alcohol until you're so drunk that you can't actually tell the difference between um, <laughs> between Haman and Mordecai, which is basically like the worst person in the world and the best person in the world um, in like Jewish Torah. So um, yeah, so that's one sort of example of, of what, um, anyway, I got kind of got sidetracked by Purim for a second, but what I was trying to say actually <laughs> was that there are two months of Adar this year. So in 5782, there's Adar 1 and Adar 2. And in one of those months, you have Purim and the other Adar is sort of just a secret Adar where you're like kind of diving more deeper into yourself and you're, you're thinking um, about, yeah, kind of like not really second Purim because there's no second Purim, but you're sort of thinking about what would it mean to be in this holiday with your own self, um, which I think is really beautiful. So yeah, so that's one one way to um, to think about Jewish time. And I think another really amazing thing about Jewish time is that you always know where the moon is <laughs> to just bring it back to the moon again. Um, so today is the 14th of Cheshvan. I don't actually know. I think it's the 20th of October we're recording this, I think, but um, I'm much more likely on any given day to know what Hebrew date it is than what Gregorian date it is. And the reason it's so cool to be like, it's the 14th of Heshvan is because that means that the moon is full. Um, so if it's the first of any Jewish month, the moon is new. And if it's the 14th or 15th of any Jewish month, the moon is full. And if it's like, you know, the 29th or 30th of any Jewish month, the moon is like balsamic or waning. Um, so yeah, it's really great. It's really sweet to actually have that kind of, um, that way to measure your time, because without a doubt, you always know exactly what stage the moon is in. And that was really important for Jews in sort of pre-1948 
technological eras to sort of count their time by. Like it makes a lot of sense that you would measure um, time by how the moon is going. And, you know, historically people used to set um, bonfires um, and like on the tops of mountains and like signal fires to like let other people know that the moon was new. Um, that and, and, and Judaism, the new moon, unlike in sort of traditional witchcraft, is what we would call probably the first like crescent moon. So in, yeah, so in like a lot of, you know, most sort of witchy places today, if we talk about the new moon, we usually mean like the dark moon, um, you know, where, where you can't see anything. But in Judaism, if you talk about the new moon, you, you usually mean the first sliver of the moon that you can see. So that can be a little bit confusing if you're trying to, <laughs> if you're trying to navigate, you know, both the Gregorian and the and the Jewish calendar at the same time as I try to do. Um, but it's also really a beautiful way to sort of put a foot in both worlds, I think. Um, so, yeah. Wow, and I just had my mind blown in so many ways. There were like <laughs> explosions after explosions um, of really good stuff. I love how you're relating to the moon. It feels so healing to look at it that way. I think a lot of people will resonate with that. And yeah, thank you so much. So I, I know we don't have forever, unfortunately, but I hope you'll maybe one day come back on the show and then we can follow up and talk even more. But I, before we go, I would love to hear a little bit more about kind of wish your wishes and dreams for our queer futures and maybe how that's relating to the program that's coming up in your work and what the program looks like and yeah, what you're hoping it's going to do for our queer futures. Thank you. That's a beautiful question. Um, so yeah, for our queer futures, um, just to move quickly back to sort of what I was saying earlier, um, I really want there to be just as expansive a possibility as there was for us sort of at the beginning of the pandemic where we were like, you know what, we could really like take down capitalism at this moment if we wanted to. Remember that moment where everyone was like, wow, anything feels possible. I want that to come back. <laughs> so I really want that to be our future and us to be like, yes, I would really love for everyone to, you know, live their best life. I really want, you know, beyond everyone just having their basic needs met, I think everyone deserves to live luxuriously. Um, and or as, you know, the famous quote from the movie, The Witch says, live deliciously. Like, I actually want everyone to live deliciously. <laughs> I want there to be um, I want people to have access to their longing and their collective longing for different ways of being. And, you know, I actually don't know what that's going to look like, um, apart from, you know, things like land back and reparations that are essential to our future and our survival. And for, yeah, for um for the world to to be better um, and to for repair to be made. Um, I also just like don't know apart from that what or in what form that might take. I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like, but I also know that we can get there. Um, and so I feel like yeah, my course um, is called Alchemize Longing, and it's a sort of a pilgrimage course. Um, it's a pilgrimage of possibility. That's the subtitle because having been in academia for eight years, I can't actually have anything without a subtitle now. That's just like a tick. <laughs> so. <laughs> sort of like kind of have to run with it. But um, yeah, the course is going to run um, from between the last night of Hanukkah, which is on the 5th of December um, to right before the winter solstice. So like the Sunday right before the 21st or 22nd. Um, and um, the course is actually open to everyone. So it's open to Jews and non-Jews. Um, I really wanted to do that because I feel like uh, I would love the variety of perspectives just from everyone there. Um, and it's also just like, it's informed by my own ancestral knowing and my like um, 
yeah, my, what I bring to, to the space is going to be informed by Jewish tradition, but I don't think I want it to be exclusive to Jews, um, at least this particular course. Um, and um, <clears throat> this course is also like a journey into the depths of winter, um, which is something that I really found kind of luxurious to think about when I was first brainstorming. And I was like, what can I do, you know, in winter that would be really juicy and fun and like delicious. And I was like, oh, what if we like dove into that? What if we like didn't actually shelter from winter? You know, I mean, obviously shelter from winter, but what if we actually kind of dove into that openness um, and that darkness and that beautiful kind of movement between, um, between Hanukkah and the winter solstice. And there's this really beautiful like three week period that that takes place in where you see the last Hanukkah candle lights um, you know, traditionally the eight days of Hanukkah, eight candles. So you see all the whole menorah lit and then the winter solstice three weeks later, it's totally dark, right? So it's sort of this really interesting kind of move from like the last bit of light to the last bit of darkness, right? When things start getting lighter in the world itself. So it's this sort of tie between the two, um, between our, our ability to make things light and the universe and the world coming back and nature coming back. So, um, yeah, really interested in, in in that journey into winter and through um, I, the course is also really focused on um, sort of the lens of the speculative. And by that, I really mean what is possible. So going back to this, you know, queer futurities question, um, you know, what what is possible for us? And again, like that's not something that I know for sure what that looks like. But I also think that's better that way. I don't think we ought to know what things are going to look like. I think that it's much more generative to have an open kind of imagination for what things might look like, because, um, you know, there's so many beautiful things that we might not even know at this point that we wouldn't be able to make room for unless we said anything, anything can happen. Right. So, um, for the speculative, I'm thinking about, yeah, what is possible and also the sort of tradition of speculative fiction, especially uh, feminist science fiction from the 1970s through today. Um, and so the course is going to be looking a little bit at that and also, you know, um, a lot at sort of creative practice. Um, and it's for folks who are creative and also folks who might not identify as creative. And that's totally okay. Like, you don't have to be like a writer or an artist to come. Um, you can just be like, I would be interested in, you know, spending a little bit of time working on something um, that's creative. And I think a lot of things can be creative. I think that um, writing especially is encouraged because that's sort of my thing, but I would also not preclude anything else. I would also say, you know, if you want to draw in this class or if you want to sketch or do little doodles, like, please do. Um, and I'm also encouraging things like other creative acts and remixes. Like, you know, if, if you want to retell a story, that you really love you should do that if you know as long as you don't like sell it to anyone it's probably fine and even then you know if you change enough stuff you know I'm not precluding anything so um yeah I'm really excited about this course and really excited to see um the kind of people who will sign up because I think it's a really um yeah like not to toot my own horn but I think it's a really unique and kind of um unusual class because I don't really think anyone else is doing anything quite like this and that's kind of exciting Mm-hmm. I'm super happy tooting your horn. <laughs> totally, Ren. And <laughs> I'm so excited for the course too. So thank you so much. So before we go, what is a good way to connect with you if people want to know more? I know you have a newsletter. Um, are you on Instagram still? I'm not sure. Uh, you mentioned Twitter. Is that a thing? Yes, thank you. Um, my website, um, I just um, am changing right now to a custom domain name. So it's archivefeverdream.com. Um, archive as in like 
um, you know, archiving things and fever is in a fever and then dream. Well, I didn't really need to say all of that because you all know what that is, but um, yeah, archivefeverdream.com. And my Instagram is bat priestess, one word, um, B-A-T priestess. And um, although I might be changing it also to archive fever dream in the future. Um, and yeah, maybe on a future podcast, I can go into like too much depth about what archive fever dream means as a name. But <laughs> for now, I think I'll, I'll stop there. That is such a cool cliffhanger. <laughs> Let's definitely <laughs> put a needle in here and talk about that some more. Thank you so much, Ren. I feel fully nourished and nurtured and excited and inspired. I'm going to let all this uh, kind of settle in my body as I nap after this. But it's been so wonderful to hear from you and do a bit of storytelling and exploration. And like I said, I'm super excited to share this with everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yaro. Yeah, it's been a pleasure.